In today's episode, we are talking about ADHD and medication. Now, today's guest, Dr. Helen Reed, is a psychiatrist and she is able to prescribe ADHD medication and she talks about tweaking and changing the medication. However, she is not your personal doctor. So please, please listen to this episode as guidance and some help and support. But if you are changing or tweaking your medication, this has to be done through your titrating prescriber and your doctor. So I just wanted to flag that up before today's episode. Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Hi everyone, so welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, I'm your host here as always. And today I'm absolutely delighted to introduce a fantastic guest, um, Dr. Helen Reed. Now, Dr. Reed is an experienced consultant psychiatrist with 30 years experience in the NHS, most recently a lead for ADHD at a large London teaching trust. She has many years of experience with neurodiversity, both in ADHD, and ASD and their many comorbidities. Dr. Reed is also a trained individual and family psychotherapist, particularly specializing in cognitive analytical analytic therapy and her psychodynamic cognitive understanding and strategies really help in the journey of self-understanding and formulating a treatment plan that actually works. That's what we like to hear. Dr. Helen Reed has a special interest in rejection sensitivity, which we will be discussing in today's podcast, and other emotional issues, which are so often part of these conditions. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Helen has ADHD herself and as do her children. So Helen's advice, support and experience to parents is firsthand reflecting the often difficult family journey she has taken with many difficulties and many successes along the way. Dr. Reed's lived experience of ADHD means that her treatment plans are always from the inside. She lives in London and her practice, ADHD consultancy, specialises in neurodiversity. Dr. Helen Reed, welcome to the podcast. I'm so delighted to have you here. I know how busy you are and um, I've waited a long time to speak to you because I know how much all the listeners are going to get from this conversation. So welcome. Thank you so much, Kate. It's wonderful to be here. And uh, may I say, first of all, how much I really appreciate your wonderful website and your lovely podcast, which I'm a fan of, actually, whenever I have time to listen to it. So thank you for all that you do for ADHD as well. Well, you know, listen, thank you so much for saying that it means a huge amount, especially when it comes from psychiatrists, it comes from GPs. I do get a lot of messages from GPs saying, I don't have many resources to offer you, but here's a good podcast to listen to. So it really makes me um, makes me really happy to hear that. But my biggest thing is bringing experts and specialists like yourself onto the podcast. So you can really explain to the listeners what's going on on the ground right now, what's the most up-to-date research, evidence. Um, 
So perhaps maybe you can kind of give us a little bit of an idea of what's evolved in your practice while you've been working in this field and I guess the change in, in patients as well. It's been an evolving thing. I've been a psychiatrist for 30 years, but certainly um, in the NHS, I only took over uh, managing the ADHD service. Oh, gosh, time flies, doesn't it? I'm going to say six years ago. It was about six years ago. And I left the NHS about three years ago uh, because really this private consultancy that I do has took off such a lot. And I found it um, a better place a better platform really in which to kind of bring the things that I wanted to to my clients so yes ADHD is a massively changing specialty it's evolving in front of our eyes really and it is so exciting as you say now 30 years ago um, we didn't really have much of a concept that ADHD was a thing really in in adults. I mean, you know, it's only been a fairly recent thing that people have accepted that ADHD kids, by and large, will grow up to be adults who either will still fulfill the criteria for a diagnosis of ADHD, but, you know, we don't grow out of our dopamine brain. So whatever age you are, there will be things that we can learn from, uh, from understanding how this type of a brain works. And I think really this for me, ADHD is a patient-led specialty. And I think all the wonderful change, all the huge sort of growth in knowledge and awareness, it hasn't really been spearheaded by the medical profession. I think it's really been spearheaded by patients, patients like yourself, patients like me, you know, people who kind of find this thing out and it hits them possibly like a like a millstone might hit you on the head and suddenly it explains a lot of things. And then, of course, we start to research. And um, I think that's that's where most interesting things are coming out of. And I think it should be that way because I think having ADHD myself and then, you know, obviously having come to it really through my children's diagnosis, my own diagnosis, it really kind of developed organically from what I was doing before, which was very much personality disorder, psychotherapy. Um, I ran a crisis service for my trust for about seven years, which was um, which was amazing. But I sort of, as I moved across to ADHD, it was really me realising that in many of these places, we're dealing with the same people. We're just not giving them the right label. That is something I feel very strongly about. And the evidence for that really comes um, much more than from research, although there is some good research going on out there, of course. It comes much more from actually doing it, from like being in the clinic. For me, knowing that people that I see now you know, have very similar difficulties to people that I've seen before that perhaps have different psychiatric labels. Mm. Um, And of course, a label is just a label, you know, it doesn't matter, does it? But it does matter if, you know, one label has a treatment which is really going to work and the other labels are, you know, not going to bring us anything very effective in terms of our lives improving. Yeah. Some people say, why do you need a label? But actually, when you have lived not understanding yourself all your life and you've like you say, you've been misdiagnosed, put on the wrong medication, you're told there's nothing wrong, all these things. And that potentially has like brought on anxiety and depression when you are then being able to kind of go, that's what it is. Now I understand that label is very, very impactful. And, you know, 
there's this sort of term being bandied around, being coined um, of like women like us, we're this sort of lost generation who have flitted around, you know, to therapists and psychiatrists, and we've been given different diagnoses that just haven't quite sat with us, or we've not been given conclusive um, help really, or just kind of been left to deal with things. And then we are finding out in our 40s, 50s, 60s, that actually it's ADHD, we're able to connect these dots. And that sense of relief alongside the grief and the sadness is profound. And I, I, I've said this before, but I don't know of another clinical disorder, difference, whatever you want to call it, that ticks all those boxes the way ADHD in women does. That's why I feel like it's so topical and why it's so profound when women especially are getting these diagnoses. Do you are you seeing that as well? Absolutely. I mean if, if you would have said to me five years ago that you know I would have narrowed you know my focus from the whole of psychiatry to neurodiversity. Not that it really is narrow, but it sounds a bit narrow, doesn't it? And if you would have said, well you know you'll be basically kind of diagnosing one thing you'll be talking to people about one thing and you'll be doing it every day year in year out and I, you know although I've never got bored with patients you know I think it's something I notice very much in the clinic uh, that um, people hyper focus we hyper focus on our clients whoever they are you know and that right through the clinic you've got people who are doing frontline stuff helping stuff reaching out to people and it's something I think that ADHD people are very very good at and of course we will bring hyperfocus to that. So, you know, but I would have wondered whether or not I might get bored um, to some extent and want to sort of break it up with some other things. Answer, no, I never get bored. And the reason I never get bored is A, because it's fascinating, but B, because of the massive difference it makes to people. And it it's constantly wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful to be able to bring this to people, to have them sort of to validate their what they've often had you know when they book the appointment if you like this sense of my goodness there's something here like finally explain you know the years of struggle the, the pain that I've been through the you know and and of course we ADHDs I don't think well we're not probably not alone in this but of course our emotions being what they are we will tend to blame ourselves when something doesn't work so you know mm-hmm. you've had the drugs they didn't work that's because you're rubbish you know you've had the therapy it didn't work. Well, obviously, you're rubbish, aren't you? Because and I think it's very hard for us to think, well, actually, it was the wrong thing, unless you get somebody who gives you permission to say, actually, that is you. And more often than not, at the end of my consultations, and you know, they're they're in depth, you know, long, two hour chats, and I get a lot of information from people. So they, you know, they're very detailed, but people still often want to check in before they go are you absolutely sure that I've got it are you absolutely sure that I'm not just lazy and it it breaks your heart but also it's the most wonderful thing to be able to bring that to people and it changes lives yeah couldn't agree more you know in my um community I've got a, a membership community and we've got a whatsapp group and it's such an amazing supportive group of women and it's women who are waiting for assessment who have been diagnosed and the most common thing I keep seeing is one of the women saying I've had my diagnosis today but I still don't believe it like I still don't (laughs) believe it like they've what happens if I trick the psychiatrist what happens if I've made it all up like they're they're gaslighting themselves and they still because this is years of the same self-talk going on and on I'm, I'm lazy it's my fault I should do things differently and then they've got that validation from an eminent psychiatrist who is saying that 
yes, this is, you have um, ADHD on a very high level or whatever they've been told. And they still, it takes them ages for them to process it, actually believe that they've not tricked the psychiatrist. And again, I kind of think there's no other condition that I hear about where women, the self-talk, especially, and that internalized conversation that we've had. And a lot of the conversations I have sometimes with my clients, um, especially when we do EFT, is breaking down the, I'm not to blame, it's not my fault, I didn't have to do things differently, um, it's okay to be me, like all that kind of those self, um, those limiting beliefs that they've had, it's like chipping away and starting new foundations again, isn't it? If like this new kind of like core self of actually all those things which I thought were, you know, were things that were wrong with me, flaws are actually, you know, things I can work with. These are like strengths now that I can start to play with. Um, and it's incredibly empowering having this diagnosis. But people are listening who perhaps can't afford to go private. They're waiting on the NHS, um, a very, very long wait, or they've maybe chosen that they, they're just not going to go down that route unless they've gone with a self-diagnosis. How can someone with a self-diagnosis that hasn't had that validation from a doctor start to kind of change that self-talk a little bit? What do you say? I mean, I I do say to people in my clinic, it's understandable that people will have this doubt. And to be honest, you know, it doesn't sound true. You know, I've got to say, if I'm listening to it with my logical ear, if I didn't live this stuff, if, if it wasn't my life, I would say, well, that's a bit preposterous, isn't it? Like, are you really saying that, you know, 5% of the population have got this difference, um, which, you know, responds like nothing you've ever seen before to treatment, which I personally think is the most convincing thing about all of it. But, you know, we're not talking about a sort of, you know, are you blue or are you red? We're talking about symptoms that everybody has, and they are, you know, continuously distributed through the population. So, you know, we have all got a bit of ADHD, but that is not to take away, you know, from the suffering of the people who are in the top 5%, which is where we currently have our man-made, and I do mean man-made, um, cut-off point. And if I was in charge of everything, I would probably bring that cut-off point down a bit. And the reason I would do that is because of the massive effectiveness of, of, of medication um, in this condition. And I know not everybody is on the medication journey, and I don't want to talk about nothing else except medication. But from my point of view, it shrinks down the giant hamster wheel of a person's life. And I think that uh, it's it's really um, important for people to have the pressure taken off them. And, you know, all our lives, I think we've lived with so much pressure. And part of it is that if you have this kind of brain, it's actually a lot more effortful to live in the world and to do the things that we're expected to do. So I describe that for people as a hamster wheel. You know, I feel that, you know, with untreated ADHD, your hamster wheel is just a lot bigger than everybody else's. And Without exception, the people that come to my clinic are exhausted, overwhelmed, you know, flat on the floor. They literally, they have tried everything, and I mean everything, and they don't know what to do next. And so part of what I say to them is, you know, there's no prizes for doing it the hard way. Really, if we can find a way to make things easier to accomplish these goals without killing ourselves with effort, then clearly that's going to be um, a good thing. So yes, I mean, a self-diagnosis, I think that um, if people understood more about the fact that the symptoms are continuous, so if you if you do an online questionnaire, you know, uh, and you answer honestly, as, as people will obviously do, and if it tells you that you've got significant symptoms of ADHD, well, that tells you that you're on that continuum, which we all are anyway. It gives you an idea of where you are on the continuum. 
And if, you know, if the online thing says to you that you have quite a lot more of these symptoms than other people and you're struggling quite a lot more than other people, um, then, you know, that's true, you know, and that's all the diagnosis is. I mean, any mental health diagnosis is really let's ask you about what the symptoms are like. Let's ask you what effect that has on your life. And, you know, we don't doubt that with depression. You know, I, I when I talk to... Um, groups of consultants about all of this, you can absolutely guarantee that somebody will put their hand up at some point and say, well, how do you know it's ADHD and not just someone who's a bit lazy? And yet, if I was going to talk about depression, you wouldn't get someone putting their hand up saying, well, how do you know that person's really got depression and not just a bit sad and miserable? Um, mm. We know it's somatic, it's not nature, it's degree. If you have enough of these symptoms that they're holding you back, you know, that you, you're doing your best, you're exhausting yourself, but somehow you seem to fail to achieve your potential. Well, that is what we call impairment criteria. And if you've got symptoms and impairment, that's where the diagnosis sits, really, you know, and it is actually as simple as that. So I wanted you guys to be the first to hear about the launch of my brand new groundbreaking ADHD women's wellbeing hormone series. Now you may have seen me talk about it on social media, but the VIP mailing list is now open. So I want you guys to be the first to be able to get all the information. You're going to get the early bird pricing and you're also going to get a bonus workshop with me, a bonus live workshop. I've been listening to you and from my own experience as well, I found there's very little to be able to connect the dots between our health, our well-being, and our hormones as ADHD women. So I have interviewed specialists, experts, and thought leaders in their areas all about women's health hormones and the intersection with neurodivergence and ADHD in women. This is a groundbreaking series. It's all on video, but you can also listen to it on audio. And you're going to learn how to manage your ongoing hormone, energy, and lifestyle challenges alongside your ADHD. And I've created this video series so you can finally access the guidance from experts to help validate what you have experienced with your hormones and offer you clear advice and support to move forwards with self-leadership and positivity to reclaim control of both your physical and your mental health. So please head to the show notes or my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk to see the link. If you click on that, you will be on the VIP mailing list. So you get that early bird offer. Now this early bird offer is only open for a few days and then it's going to go up to the full price. So I wanted to make sure that anyone that listens to this podcast gets this offer, you have then got access to my bonus workshop where I'm going to be discussing and answering questions from all the different insights from the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Hormone Series. I promise you, you are not going to want to miss this. I've not seen anything else out there like what I've created and you are going to learn so much about how to empower and support and most importantly, advocate for yourself with regards to perimenopause, hormones, energy, autoimmune issues and ADHD. So head to my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk and sign up for the VIP launch. I mean, it's crazy, isn't it, that we're still talking about this stigma and this taboo of ADHD. And again, like no other medical condition, psychiatric condition, ADHD is still people who should know better are still making people feel bad about, you know, talking about ADHD and maybe um, 
I'm going to come onto the onto the Panorama documentary that happened a few months ago. But the fact that a documentary like that was broadcast in this day and age and which completely unsettled the ADHD community and made people like question their diagnoses, question their assessments, question themselves, the medication, like everything and go back to that place of, well, maybe I am just lazy or maybe I am just like um, messy or disorganized and maybe I just need to just sort my life out. It's just, I think that's what kind of compounds it so much for, for people with ADHD is that there's the shame and the embarrassment. And, you know, for women who, again, are only just discovering ADHD in, in later life, they've got to navigate this kind of old taboo and this old stigma and talking about it and telling people about it and having you know, uneducated, ignorant people kind of go, well, that's what little boys have. And you don't look like you've got ADHD. And look, you know, you've managed to hold down a job and you're successful, so you can't have ADHD. So on top of all the internalized exhaustion and overwhelm and all the things that we've been navigating, we then have to manage other people's expectations and uh, opinions. And we've got to kind of think about that and think about the conversations and the accommodations that we ask for. And this is why I get so angry, but also so passionate to help empower women, give them the language, the um, insight um, and the understanding so and the awareness so they can come in and be like, actually, no, this is what I deserve. This is what's going on for me. This is why I've got this. And also they can support their own children as well. They can support because it's big work being a woman with ADHD, being a mother, looking after your children, making sure they're getting all the right accommodations uh, at work, university, whatever, at school. And then something like the BBC documentary comes in and basically just steamrolls over all the hard work that, you know, many people have been advocating for. So I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> I'm going to ask you what you found after, what was sort of the paving of destruction that happened after that documentary in your clinic? Well, um, the main destruction happened inside my own head um, as I self-destructed with rage, like watching this programme, as you said, it, it just, you know, obviously people must be free to make programmes that they want to, and obviously the chap who was uh, starring in the programme espouses a fairly normal societal but wrong view of ADHD so you know we're exposed to that stuff all the time but Panorama gives it an authority doesn't it and an authority and a platform uh, which it truly does not deserve because you know I think that um, it's not just the fact that they question the validity of ADHD which I think we're used to you know we, 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 we have to go through that to get a diagnosis I think it is it is a hard challenge and I hope that that will change over time but I think also more to the point it had some really wrong stuff in it um you know a, apart from the fact that they didn't really I, I mean I feel very sorry they picked off some low-hanging fruit in terms of private clinics interestingly they picked off clinics where doctors don't do the whole assessment themselves and I really agree, disagree that we should be promulgating an idea that somehow if you're a doctor you're this magic person and your questions have more validity than everyone else's um you know those clinics are more affordable for people you know and affordable is good so I think it's a great you know I personally have no knowledge of the actual clinics they have on there but I do dislike the principle that you must go to a doctor and the idea that you are supposed to have a three-hour assessment from a specialist 
I don't know anywhere where that happens, private NHS anywhere else. My assessments are two hours. Um, and, you know, it, it, and obviously we had a lot of forms as well. But you know, the idea that you could get that in the NHS, like I was really angry with, to be honest, with, with, with the medical colleague who appeared on there because you know, the fact that he's an autism specialist rather than ADHD specialist does not help. And of course, autism is something that one does often have a three-hour assessment for. So I think there was a lot of confusion about what the standard actually should be. Um, you know, in the NHS, I know I work there. You will be very lucky if you get an assessment which is more than one hour long. And the chances are you'll get someone, some, you know, somebody who knows nothing about ADHD doing that assessment. You know, and certainly when I left um, the trust that I was working for, I was replaced by a colleague, you know, a very, very nice person, but a colleague who knew nothing about ADHD at all and in fact couldn't see any patients until she'd waited three months to go on a two-day introduction to ADHD course. That's who you're going to be seeing. So it is not. It was wrong on so many levels. And I've since discovered actually that some people who should know an awful lot better were briefing behind the scenes about that. So I, I feel there's some element of, of, of doctors trying to take back control of ADHD diagnosis again, which fair enough if you want to put your prices down. Well, you know if you want to do it, but people have to be able to afford it. You know, we, we certainly one place you won't see an ADHD specialist is in the NHS, and you're much more likely. And I'm sure we've both met people that this has happened to who wait two years oh you weren't late you're not fidgeting as you say you've got a great job you know you don't you can't have ADHD I'm not going to diagnose you and I mean that is just soul destroying for people to go through that so I think the patients were really missing from that documentary um at the people who actually have the diagnosis and I see and I'm sure you see every day nobody almost no one who comes to my clinic wants to take medication I mean it isn't the case that you've got people it should be if people really understood how great this diagnosis is and how helpful the treatment is how well it works they should be faking their symptoms they should be like desperate to try but they're not you know even people who really need this treatment or perhaps especially people who really need it um you know, have a real bias against taking medication. And a lot of them are very sensitive to medication. A lot of them have had bad experiences or, you know, just medication not working, which is in itself a bad experience, isn't it, really? Um, So I do, it's just not true that people want the diagnosis. It's not definitely not true that they want the medication. I think people come as a last resort for an ADHD assessment. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that because they get the diagnosis and then this hesitation with the medication, this fear, this worry. There's a lot of talk talk online and a lot of the forums and it's very confusing and overwhelming because one person will say this type of medication worked fantastically, but the other one didn't. And until there's a better way of deciphering, you know, maybe from a genetic or a blood test, I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but a way of kind of going there's a much higher chance that this medication will work for you. But also the way our ADHD presents as well. You know, we may present with a huge amount of anxiety and mood mood swings, and one type of medication will be great for that. Another one is the physical restlessness, hyperactivity, the fidgeting, the nail biting, the skin picking. Um, another side might be the binge eating, more sort of like addictive side, you know, and with from what I know, there's different type of medication that sort of work or not. I don't know. But I, I've heard that there's different types of medication which work better with more sort of specific areas of, of ADHD. But it can be very confusing. And it's also scary, isn't it? It's kind of like... 
it's, it's I, d- terrifying. I don't want to change. You, you kind of do want to change, but you don't want to change drastically, do you? It's like we're in my clinic, but, uh, you know, and I, I say people say that. They say that all the time. You know, we there's some wonderful things about having ADHD. Absolutely wonderful, you know, and I, I obviously will be biased, but I would tend to feel that kind of neurodiverse people are, are for me anyway, the, the best kind of people, really. And I think we bring a lot to society, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, spontaneity, personality, being fun, thinking outside the box, you know, and having that ability to sort of see through the conventional sort of crap, you know, and the hierarchical stuff to actually a fairly simple way in which we could do things better. And and I think that often goes wrong for us when we try and explain that to people, but it doesn't mean that it's not a very valuable insight. And then, of course, standing up for justice, that well-known neurodiverse trait. I I think the world would be such a worse place without that. Um, So, yeah, it's not a question of losing the good bits, is it? It's a question, as I see it, of shrinking the hamster wheel down helping us to sort of show up and, you know, and, and, and be able to stick to things a little bit more. Um, and of course, a big thing that no one seems to know about, which is huge in ADHD, it really affects the ability to process language, actually. And I now test people for this because I've noticed it to be a big thing and stimulants are massively helpful for that. So, you know, in the clinic, and I'm going to say this is everyone because it actually is everyone, um, in hyperfocus of course, we're great. We can process language. We can listen. We can do all of the normal things. But whenever we're not in hyperfocus, and that will include when we're feeling emotional or intimidated or tired or not very well or just a bit bored, um, but also in a group or if there's background noise, you know, if lots of people, in all of those situations, someone with untreated ADHD is really going to be just faking it. They're not actually generally from what I see in my clinic, it seems to be a pretty much 100% sample. And it's a large sample as well. And, you know, when you say that to people, they say, yeah, that's true. You know, I am, everyone in my clinic has the most wonderful listening face. We're all so good at nodding and smiling. You know, we hear the beginning, you know, we hear the end. And, but it's hard work and it feeds social yeah. anxiety. And I think it brings, you know, I, I see a lot of lot of massively intelligent people i've got a big practice at oxford university you know certified boffins right but they all top to bottom of the pile they all have this same issue and i think it feeds this sort of feeling of well you know you think i'm intelligent but inside i'm secretly stupid and i'm going to really try for you not to find that out and that's a massive thing and it's something that stimulants really help with and in fact that is why i'm here that's the whole reason I'm here because as I tell my, I, I tell this story far too more often than I should do, but you know, it's, it's the ultimate experience as to why I'm here. And it's, it's, it comes from my eldest son really being diagnosed with autism at three. Now he's 25 now. So that was a long time ago. right? And uh, one of the things they picked up was language processing problems. Um, he was a good talker, but it was often a bit hard for him to process what was being said. Mm-hmm. And we know this is the case with autism. It's on the list of diagnostic things. We don't know it's also an issue with ADHD, but it is. And, you know, so he was a bright little chap, but he was often in the classroom in his own little world, not really able to kind of get what was going on. And that was why I went on my quest, like how to help my son. And it's hard to find this. You'll find lots of speech therapy websites and do this exercise and do that exercise. It's really hard to find the information that stimulant medication massively helps with language processing. And so the first day my son got his got a Ritalin before he went to school, he came home and his little face was like the sun. 
you know, and it was, I can understand what they're saying in the classroom. It was an absolute, and it was life changing, you know. Yeah. And he is a lawyer these days, and that would not have happened. No way would that have happened without them. And, and that made me so cross that I had to find that out. That why don't people know this? It's too important for people not to know. Mm. And yet they don't know. And so that's a massive thing, which is behind the scenes that people don't talk about. And yet, you know, I think we all experience it. Yeah, I mean, that's a really lovely example. So does he still take medication? Oh, yes, um, he yeah. does. Yeah, absolutely. So, you see, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, there is this like, oh, you know, we'll only take the medication for this time or just to get me through this point. But actually, if it's helping, what, like you say, why make your life harder? Mm. Um I had a very similar experience with my daughter when she was diagnosed at nine and she took the medication, went into school and she, no, sorry, we, we were homeschooling at the time and she was sitting, sitting in front of the screen and for the first time ever, she put her hand up, she asked the answer the question, she did the comprehension, which was what she just could never ever do and she read it she understood it and she filled in you know the answers and she just went mummy it was just like I was like a different brain um and so I've never it was like light and day literally yes, light and day yes, for her exactly it gave her confidence exactly. she would never read out in class she would be scared to put her hand up you know but now we're having a you know issues with the medication with this you know she doesn't like certain aspects of it of course um, and I think, you know, it's it's okay to tweak things and change things, but to not be afraid, like to not be afraid. But I think there is an, an element of fear because it is hard to get those appointments. It's hard to pin down, you know, the, the doctor who diagnosed you to then have the, um, to be able to kind of go back and say, right, can I tweak this? Can I change that? There's still sort of gaps, aren't there? There's still holes in the way that the process is. Um, huge, absolutely huge. You know, it's not been that many years, has it? And in fact, I still encounter people in my clinic who have been told, you're 18 now, you don't have ADHD anymore, off you go. You know, medication stopped, everything stopped. And, you know, and those people, because they're not eligible now to come back into the child service, they're going to have massive difficulty getting their medication back and it's only when their life falls apart for a few years that you know then they sort of get it together and it's very wrong but I would um I mean my son definitely like I wouldn't like to give you the impression that it was all plain sailing with regard yeah. to I, I I think children naturally go through a process of questioning and especially when they're young when they start the medication you know and my son for quite a while you know wondered and I, I could see this you know, did I really have autism or did people treat me differently because you were constantly telling them that I had autism, you know? And you, know, you can't argue that one, can you, really, in a way? And, and certainly he did stop the medication for quite a while. And it was only when he nearly failed his probation uh, at his job. And it was a high-level job. It involved sort of court representations and all the kind of things that somebody with language processing issues is really going to struggle with. And I think it was only really when that happened that he sort of had a bit of a rethink started the medication again realized that it was obviously really helpful and now but I but I do think it's a hard mental journey and I can certainly understand why people are asked you know and in a way the more you've been there for them and you've been this wraparound person that kind of deals with all their issues which of course we will do and we should do um the more they'll be questioning like how much was real 
and you know and, and adolescents and young people they need their self-esteem they need that to go out into the world and you know conquer the battles that they have to conquer you know it's vital that they do think well of themselves and this idea that oh well there's something wrong with me some difference people don't like it you know whenever I see adolescents in my clinic I always say to the parents you know well we'll need your score on this as well because the average adolescent not many of them will admit to having any problems because they certainly don't want people to start giving them stuff in the classroom that's going to make them stand out and in their mind it's going to make their life harder so it is you know it's a bit it's a winnable battle and now you know I think 25 is 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 has been a very good age you know my son and I now have a, an excellent relationship but we have had our moments definitely yeah and, uh, yeah well thank you for sharing that um I mean I wanted to ask you you've got a um an interest in rejection sensitive rejection sensitivity dysphoria RSD and we do mm. hear this term being talked about a lot and I know so many of us relate to it I mean it almost seems kind of like I've never met someone with ADHD that doesn't suffer with um, some form of rejection sensitivity yeah, agreed. Yeah. how do you help people with that and is it just an, an ability of being aware of it um to be able for people to be able to go now I understand now I understand why I'm so sensitive with friendships and relationships and criticism and feedback um or is there anything else that people can be doing to help themselves um, I, well I do think awareness is important and I do agree with you that it's it is, you know it's to my mind it should be on the diagnostic criteria for ADHD um, well I think the thing is there's a lot of established psychiatric diagnoses that would be you know it would be a little bit difficult to argue for their separate existence if you allowed this thing to be a thing you know where is the boundary between bipolar emotionally unstable personality you know w- where does that sit? And even are there, I personally don't believe that those are actually real things. I, I believe that all of that um, is likely to be ADHD and perhaps various other neuro sort of uh, comorbid sort of uh, things. So, yeah, I think ADHD makes you take a very dimensional view of all sorts of things that, you know, things can overlap, you know, blue and blue and red can make purple, you know, but that doesn't mean um, that we need a separate category called purple. It can be much easier for us to understand that it's an overlap, it's a mixture of blue and red. Um, And I think the same thing with mental health diagnoses. So what can we do? Well, I think you're right, knowing that it's a thing, knowing that we have a slightly different kind of brain and that our emotions will be turned up much higher than other people's. So we can know like cognitively that if I feel upset by something, the chances are that you may well not even have noticed this thing that I'm agonising about. If I think you hate and despise me, the chances are you haven't even considered whatever it was and it was a thing that mainly happened in my head. Um, Many things I've learned myself, sleeping on it. What a wonderful thing to do in the morning things often look a lot better. So I think realising that we have a bit of a tornado machine in our head is a very helpful thing. But in ADHD, we see it everywhere. And I always say to people, it's like you're on this trapdoor, you know, and however great the day is, however well you've done, you are always like one thought, one memory, one nothing at all from just like plunging into this place of self-hatred. And you can't talk yourself out of it. You know, that just makes you feel worse because now you're this person who can't talk. You know, you might know you're overthinking. I think a lot of us do know that we're overreacting. Mm. Doesn't mean you can say, okay, well, I'll just snap out of it then. It does take time. So I think ADHD medication does help a great deal with emotional dysregulation. Um, And in my clinic, um, what we tend to do is because obviously stimulants last only a certain amount of time and then they stop working on on the day. They, they, They work for a number of hours, depending what we're taking. And then they stop working. And of course, when you're thinking about 
emotional dysregulation, rejection, sensitivity, stuff like that, that often feels like a crash. And so people can say, well, that was great, but I had this terrible side effect because I was so allergic to this medication that I suddenly felt like shit, if it's my French, after about five hours after taking the meds. And of course, so I educate people in the clinic, this stuff's time limited. You want to keep an eye on how long it works for and what happens when it wears off. Most people, especially most women, will get a crash um, after a few hours. And I tend to ask them, and it can be a bit of an ask given that people have had bad experiences, to just try adding in an antidepressant like Prozac, whatever your GP is giving you anyway, if you're on antidepressants, don't have to change. Um, And although they don't work very well, in my opinion, in untreated ADHD um, to help with, with, with the problems that we have with mood there, once you've got a stimulant in place, If you add an antidepressant to that, it takes the crash away and it sort of regulates the sort of emotional balance over the 24 hours. So pretty much everybody in my clinic will take a stimulant combined with an antidepressant by drug, including me. You know, I've never been depressed in my life, but I do add a Prozac. I take it only about once a week because, um, you know, of course, the whole point of these antidepressants is they stay in your body for a long time. So, you know, one doesn't have to necessarily take them every day. I mean, I think it depends on choice and, you know, how much we're battling. Um, Very helpful for PMS as well. You know, once we've got a regime like that, if someone's got PMS, they could perhaps take an extra one on those days. And those kinds of sort of proactive kind of, you know, using medication as a sort of toolkit to help us with what we're going through on that day is very useful. And I mean, there are some other medications as well. I don't know how much you want me to go into um, specifics, but there's one called clonidine, which uh, Dr. Dodson very much recommends. And I use it extensively in my clinic. This is one we take at night. It helps with the sleep architecture, but it really helps with that sense that the world is a difficult, spiky place where we're just, you know, destined to fail and be attacked all the time. So I think there's knowing about it, things we can do about it. And of course, if you do manage to stop the drug and all, if your life starts to get better, um, that gives you the sort of mental clarity and the space to do those things, perhaps to foster those relationships, which make you feel good, you know, to have another think about the ones that don't make you feel so good. We're more able to protect ourselves. We're more able to think about ourselves. There's so many ways in which having a smaller hamster wheel enables people to activate the stuff that we all know. Like I find everyone that I see knows exactly what they could do to make their life better, but they just can't do it, you know, because they're too overwhelmed is the thing. So a little bit of mental space, a bit of clarity and an understanding of what kind of brain we've got and how it actually works. I think, you know, it really can go along. And of course, success breeds success, right? Doesn't it? As does failure breed failure. So I tend to say to people, the bottom line is do what makes you feel good. If you're doing something and you feel like it's doing you good and you feel better and it's helping you, then obviously do more of it. But if you're, you know, gritting your teeth and in tears and having panic attacks and in the hope that somehow or other doing this thing is going to make you feel better, strongly suggest you stop doing it and take some medication instead. You know, I'm very much, I think we, it comes back to having that confidence to know whether something is good for you or not and to ask yourself um, those questions. Yeah, I think it's like you say, it's just like, let's use the medication for scaffolding. Let's start building an easier life, a life that feels better to us. And then, you know, great if the medication's working or if you've sort of created a structure of living that um, is enabling you to have a new job or 
motivate yourself to exercise or you're able to meet new friends, then maybe, you know, we don't have to sort of take that medication forever, but there's no shame in taking the medication. And I think what you said about using um, an antidepressant alongside, you know, I think that's incredibly empowering to know that there's options there and we can tweak these options and and we can be at the center of this like the fact that you're able to kind of have this conversation and, and to the patient the client and say well why don't we try this and how do you feel about that mm. because it means that we've got choice and we've got um, ownership and autonomy and you know great words <laughs> we like this we don't want to be told what to do we want to know that we have a bit of control a lot of control a lot of control Kate, yes. by the way you know i would say you don't get anywhere pushing someone with adhd around you can guarantee that if you're you know imposing something on someone and telling them how you're going to fix them the chances of that thing working are so much smaller than if the person chose it themselves so it is it's a vital thing of treatment i think that we people need to feel autonomous and and in my treatments are very much um, a day-by-day thing like you take it one day don't take it the next day you know do exactly what you want it basically it works when you take it doesn't work when you don't take it you know but we do have and I think one of the great arguments for this now I've noticed it in myself um really after quite a few years of taking medication daily I've just noticed that I don't need as much as I used to and there is literally nothing in my head that says you should stop taking or you should take less or you should wean yourself off you know I have no belief about that at all I think I should you know I should have the best life I can. I should take medication that makes me feel better and gives me a better day. But I just don't need as much. You know, I don't even need any of it as much as I used to. Uh, I mean, I think possibly if I stopped taking it altogether, I would expect that maybe after a few weeks or whatever, things would start to go downhill again. But, you know, I've been on medication now for 13 years. And, of course, my life has changed a lot as well, a great deal. And my life is built around my ADHD brain really you know things I I do things that are good for me and I don't do things that are not good for me right as much as possible so it has made it a lot easier but neuroplasticity and I think it doesn't mean we're necessarily going to stop taking meds altogether we can do if we want to quite a few people in my clinic especially though at school they don't take medication in the school holidays you know you need it in the classroom you absolutely need it in the classroom because the classroom is very disadvantageous for neurodiverse kids from the auditory processing point of view you know it's a group noisy etc I don't think any any of us can listen in the classroom really unless you have the kind of massive hyper focus on the subject that I think I've only found as an adult when I go to lectures about ADHD by people that I'm interested in I can listen it doesn't hurt that I take a stimulant before I go as well but I was never able to listen to anything in the classroom before and I, I think we succeed despite the way the education system is rather than because of it. So, yeah, I mean, I do think it has to be a choice, but I think it's a real shame that we see this grouping where, you know, you've got evil medication on one side and wonderful exercise and meditation and vitamins and fresh air and light and, you know, you name it, all these wonderful, wonderful things are there which we should all do. And then there's the evil medication and that's the one we shouldn't do. And it's 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 kind of ironic that that's the one that has the biggest effect size and sort of enables us to really get the most out of all the other wonderful things that are there because it's, it's very hard to sort of do meditation if your brain is a jumbled washing machine, you know, that's mm. 10 times the size it should be. And you run the risk, you know, people try and do it. It's so classic, isn't it? 
people go through these cycles, don't they? The stuff they try to do, you know, we start this thing, we go to the gym every day for three weeks, you know, fantastic. And then one day we don't, and then we just don't go there again. And it just adds to the shame and the self-hatred. But, you know, we have to give ourselves a bit of a bit of space and a bit of understanding because if we don't, nobody else will. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for giving us your expert um, opinion. You know, it, obviously we sort of talk about medication on the podcast, but I'm hesitant to do so. I'm not a specialist and it's, it's rare that I managed to get a doctor, a psychiatrist on the podcast and really talk with authority and allow people to really have a professional understanding of the medication and also validation of this is why I've been fearful, but actually, you know, after this conversation, hopefully people might kind of think, you know what, I might go back to to my consultant and, you know, maybe try it and, you know, feel a little bit more supported that they've had, Mm. you know, they've heard this conversation. Oh, can I just give one tip, one last tip? I'm just thinking, anybody thinking about medication, there's one really simple thing you can do, right? And people do not know this. If you go onto the internet and you look up physical symptoms of anxiety, put them on a page, print them off. When you get your medication from the clinic, observe how much the first half of that side effect leaflet is exactly the same. And also, you know, many people are very sensitive to meds. If you're the kind of person that has a couple of coffees and go very palpitating, very anxious, but you have to go slowly on your stimulant, you will get there. But of course, a stimulant is rather like having a coffee and it's like having quite a lot of coffees. So if you're going to go funny and you have one coffee, then break the tablet down. I think a lot of specialists don't know that unless you're on the medication yourself, you're not necessarily going to appreciate that. But that on its own will make a huge difference to people's experiences with medication. That's amazing. Thank you for that. Because <laughs> you, know, you were literally just describing me. Um, so yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. With regard to, I know you're seeing a lot of women with perimenopause that are coming through to you. I found that um, the HRT has really helped me. It really did. You know, at the age of 42, I went on it last year and that has helped me enormously with my ADHD alongside with lots of lifestyle things. I've been on medication. I've been off medication. I'm still toying with the idea of going back on it right now. I don't think I need it, but I'm not sure. If um, don't need it, then don't have it sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's, t- it's, a t- it's going to be a personal choice, hasn't it, if things are going yeah. well? But I really, because yeah. I really noticed that the my ADHD was a lot worse for, you know, the last two weeks of my cycle. Yes. Um, and that's a long time, you know, half the month feeling not, <laughs> not great. Totally, yes. But that HRT has really helped me. And yes. what you were talking about with regards to tweaking the medication, my doctor said the same to me. She said, well, if you need another pump, of the Easter gel, just do another pump of the Easter gel at the end of the month. And I was like, wow, okay, so I'm allowed to do that. So I was like looking around for like, you know, being told told off. For, but that that's what's interesting, isn't it? Is that we are, just because we're the patients and we're not doctors, we can still make decisions and choices, obviously in a safe, you know, way and making sure that we're not doing anything that we shouldn't. But um, it is okay to, to tweak things, um, especially as women with our hormones, isn't it? Are you noticing totally. this with medication that women are, you know, if they have got really bad PMS or PMDD, they can up the medication? And I tell them to, you know, I, I, I very much um, collaboratively work with people in my clinic because I've noticed that no person, you know, certainly no person in my clinic and probably no person with ADHD is actually ever going to take too much medication. 
right? The battle is, can we get them to take any? And then the second battle is, can we get them to, well, not that it has to be a battle, but, you know, if, if obviously if they're struggling, then, you know, it's it's hard to get people to accept that this might help. And it's a shame if, if they're struggling. And then can we get them to take enough to be optimised? So, you know, it's very, I very much do say to people, look, you know, you are going to know more than your doctor about this um, after this consultation. And, you know, you are the expert on yourself. And yes, you know, it's, classic that people will find if they have PMD their meds don't work so well and I often find it's actually if you're combining it with an antidepressant increasing the antidepressant rather than this I mean you can increase the the stimulant like why not but if it works for you but um you know that's obviously a bit harder to negotiate in terms of shared care with a doctor and stuff like that but you know taking two pros out rather than one on those days like we can all do that right you know if, if, if you're on something of that kind and that often helps quite a lot and knowing as well that things are harder during those um, days. Um, and also, like, we're more likely to crash into the furniture on those days as well. I think people don't always realise that, but that, that seems to really go with this kind of um, issue, doesn't it? So getting good kind of HRT, good PMS, PMDD care is really good, but stimulant medication makes it work better, I would I would say. And I time, because I see it as a giant hamster wheel situation, I think if your hamster wheel of your life is too big, that is always going to be a problem for you. And, you know, it's going to make your life more stressful. It's going to make everything a bit harder. So if we can shrink that down to a normal size, then really anything, any condition that we have, the treatment is going to work better for it because we're going to be less stressed. We're going to be happier. We're going to be winning more than we're losing, which is obviously um, very good for the dopamine, right? You know, we we love winning, don't we? We don't like being told what to do. We like feeling good at our job. We like to feel that we matter and we can make a difference. And, you know, we like that autonomy and that freedom to sort of live our lives in the way we think fit. And there's nothing wrong with any of that, is there really? Yeah, I mean, this has been absolutely fascinating. And I feel like I would love to do a whole other episode with you on lots of other things that we haven't managed to cover. Um, because your knowledge and your insights and your experience is, is so helpful for so many. So I just want to thank you so much. Um, are you taking on new patients? We do get a lot of referrals and I've recently taken on a doctor, lovely doctor, Dr. Imogen, to work with me, who's absolutely fabulous. So because of that, we are um, able, I mean, we're taking patients on, but my clinic's booked up till next February, for example. So that's quite a long time, isn't it, for people to to wait. Um, Dr. Imogen's only recently come to us and she's also offering more sessions than I am. Um, so um, yeah, by all means, if you want to, you know, if people want to come along, we do get a lot of referrals. We don't advertise people just, you know, this is a family business, isn't it really? It's a, it's a family condition. So often one person comes then someone else comes other members of it yeah you do you have lots and it's lovely it makes you feel part of something bigger really what's the website how can people find you adhdconsultancy.co.uk but you can also google me absolutely so yes do come along and you know do let's get this sorted right let's start living a bit of a better life yeah absolutely thank you so much for your time and um we'll definitely speak again absolutely it's been amazing thank you so much kate thanks listeners it's been really nice to talk to everyone thank you so much for joining me on today's episode i hope you found what you were looking for in this conversation and it's helped guide you towards some further self-healing self-exploration and most importantly self-acceptance and if you have enjoyed this conversation and would like to experience more of my work such as access to exclusive live workshops and opportunities for group coaching sessions connecting with other like-minded women 
and a general feeling of belonging, please come and check out my monthly membership, the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Collective. I've made it as affordable as possible and I offer you lots of resources and opportunities for connection and support from other women all around the world being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. I'd absolutely love to see you there. All the details are in this episode's show notes or on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. See you in the next episode.